Forgot to add myself back in there. Hey, this is Jose Galison of No Way Jose. You can find me on the uh, No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major audio podcasters and Odyssey as well. Today, my guest is Toad. And I do want to let you guys know I am caught up, back caught up, uh, have a little bit of backlog now from the hurricane uh, that threw off my whole schedule, but I'm back at it now. And uh, so this, the deal is for this one, if you're watching on the 11th, it's a live stream. If not, uh, you'll catch it uh, about a week or so later when it goes public. If you want to be able to have access to it in the meantime, you need to be a, a patron at patreon.com. Just know it was a 2020. The lowest level is two bucks, highest level is 20. Uh, and that is my sponsor, Mikhail Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. And it says patreon.com. Just no way, Jose 2020. Today, what I'll be covering with Toad is we'll be doing a live reading series or starting it of Democracy, the God that Failed. Uh, Hoppe is probably the most famous book. Uh, it's a long one. This will probably be my longest series. I'm assuming this will probably be you know, somewhere in the ballpark of 30 episodes. So, uh, well, everyone seems to be hyped about it, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> see if you guys are still falling around by episode 20. But uh, this one we're starting out, this is an introduction. Uh, this will be a little bit of a lengthy one. But, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, I do want you guys to know next week on the 20th, I will be having Chingo Bling on for another four Pony Boys. Uh, one last thing. Make sure you go check out uh, toplobster.com. Use Jose at checkout for 10% off. He has my merch. He has Tower Power merch. He has uh, Nitro Scapus merch. Bunch of merch. He also has stuff that's not show merch, uh, just stuff that he made. Uh, so definitely go check that out and also follow Top Lobster because he's the fucking man. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get Toad in here. Hey, what's up, man? Oh, yeah, what's up? What much, dude? Just fucking been sick all fucking weekend and redid my daughter's room entirely and just having to drudge through it. Just fucking ibuprofen and fucking Tylenol. Uh, if you guys hear my voice a little nasally, that's why. Uh, more so than normal. <laughs> I'm sorry I gave you the monkey box, Jose. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, you want to real quick, I know most people know who you are. Uh, we'll just do it for this first episode. I won't make you do this regularly, but just for those who are just popping in, maybe you aren't where you, where have you, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there's probably people out there only follow my show. Don't really follow tower power, but just quickly let them know who you are, uh, what you're about. And then, uh, maybe throw in there, uh, you know, why I picked you for democracy, the God that failed. Yeah. Uh, I'm Toad. As you said, I do tower power hour with you and a bunch of other uh, Tower Gang people. It is the most offensive and degenerate uh, podcast in the Liberty Sphere, so it's going to be an interesting change in uh, dynamic going from that to talking about Hans Hermann Hoppe. But you picked me, I assume, because I am an anarcho-capitalist and I am, I suppose you could refer to me as a Hoppe, and I'm definitely a right-leaning libertarian. Uh, uh, I am conservative socially, I guess we could say. Um, so, you know, I'm degenerate in speech and in comedy, but I don't actually live my life that way, mm -hmm. we could say so. And I've read this book multiple times. And it is one of my favorite books. It's one of the books that changed my way of thinking the most. So, yeah, the, I mean, I picked you because this is kind of your book. Uh, so I, I do want to eventually get all the homies for a live ring series. I'll have Cole do chaos theory because that's his book. <laughs> although he, he doesn't read yeah although he never actually done the physically read it i think he did like a youtube version or some shit was like an audio which whatever that counts i've only done the audiobook uh, of this i i always wanted to get the physical one because like books that i really enjoy i make a point of having a physical copy and if i really enjoy it too i also like to physically read it as well 
because uh, I feel like I get something different out of the uh, the audio and then I have uh, like a physical reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the, the flip side, if I get a physical copy of a book and I haven't uh, and I didn't do an audio version as well, I like if I really enjoy it, I will also do the audio version as well. I, I like to try to do both. I feel like I get different things out of it. Uh, this was yeah. definitely one of those books for me. Uh, so I'm finally, I'm glad to finally get a copy. I want to give a uh, credit to Novum. Uh, he's in the chat right now. He's uh, he's oh, Novum yeah. on Twitter with two two U's. Uh, he uh, he's a dude who because uh, a lot of people a lot of people don't know or may not be aware. This book is like, I guess not expensive as fuck, but considering for so far as yeah, books go, it's pretty expensive. Uh, it's like I think the cheapest you'll find is like fifty bucks. Yeah, uh, it's, it's like out of print. So, yeah, I yeah. think probably the lowest price you can find on it is at the Mises store. I oh, is guess. it? What's yeah. that one at? You know, like it's either 30, 40, 40 or 50. Okay, I found it, I think, on Amazon for like 50, you know, yeah. big evil Amazon, but whatever. It's it's convenient. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, that's a. Uh, so that's a, uh, yeah, shit was expensive. So I couldn't really justify getting a physical. I was going to eventually, one of these days, but it was like, I've already read it. So it's like, I'll. <laughs> one of these days yeah but uh yeah. i mentioned i think i, I don't remember even why, how it came up but i mentioned it in a chat and uh Novum was like you know what i'll super chat you the money for it. i was like okay fair enough uh it was kind of under the condition i did a, uh, did a live reading series although i intend to do it as well so uh yeah uh, i see david can we do choice uh i've never read choice so maybe i'll have to check that one i know it's a bob murphy book so yeah. i'll have to check yeah. that one and see uh, but yeah, let's uh, fucking go ahead and get into it. We're going to start with the introduction. Me and you will take turns, especially because my voice is kind of nasally, so it'll be helpful to kind of... We're going to run train on Hans Hermann Hoppe here. Let's go. So we're starting with the introduction today. Let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, I'll let you know when we swap out. If there's anything that comes up, I, I do want to let you guys know, this being the introduction, the, the I read, I pre-read this uh, just to kind of jog my memory. I, mm-hmm. I don't know how much conversation is really going to come up, come up in this one. Uh, for the intro, it's very matter-of-factly. There's not really a whole lot. I mean, from what I skimmed through, it didn't really seem as a whole lot of conversation. So this one may be one of the episodes as minimal commentary. But, you know, hey, you guys are here to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to put it better than Hoppe puts it. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll start into it. This will be – I'm going to try and knock out the intro of this episode. And the next episode we'll be getting into, hopefully, if we can knock this out, uh, the next episode going to time preference. Uh, so, which is – Yeah. I think is a very important concept for – libertarians understand um mm-hmm. but all yeah. right but, and the time preference uh yeah which is chapter one i believe applies to like the entire rest of the book so that's why he starts out with it and then uh the, the intro before that is kind of like the history of yes so this is more like history that's why i was thinking it's really, western democracy yeah. that's why i think it's like less commentary because it's like it's just stating stuff so it's like i don't really know how we can really talk about some of this stuff too much but hey uh we're setting the setting the tone for the rest of the book and uh so this will be important yeah all right uh do, do, do. world war one marks one of the great watersheds of modern history with its end the transformation of the entire western world from monarchical monarchical i don't know how to pronounce rule and sovereign kings to democratic republican rule and sovereign people that began with the french revolution was completed until 1914, only three republics had existed in Europe, France, Switzerland, and after 1911, Portugal. And of all major European monarchies, only the United Kingdom could be classified as a parliamentary system, one in which the supreme power was vested in an elected parliament. Only four years later, after the United States had entered the European war and decisively determined its outcome, monarchies had all but disappeared. In Europe, 
along with the entire world, entered the age of democratic republicanism. In Europe, the militarily defeated Romanovs, Hohenzollerns, uh, that's a fun one, and Habsburgs had to abdicate or resign. In Russia, Germany, and Austria became democratic republics with universal male and female suffrage and parliamentary governments. Yeah, right? (laughs) Uh, Likewise, all of the newly created successor states, with the sole exception of Yugoslavia, adopted democratic republican constitutions. I do want to take a second for those who, I know that is a joke, repeal the 19th and all that, but there is a point to be had. I'm sure we'll get into that later. The point being is in a democracy, in an ultimate democracy, everyone gets a vote. Uh, and anyone who, even if you are like kind of a, someone who likes, you know, the idea of like, uh, you know, uh, a constitutional republic, whatever, that's not what this, that is. Like the original uh, constitutional republic was like, you had to be a landowner, you had to be, yeah, you had to be white, you had to be a male. Like, I mean, yeah, I'm sure we can, you could probably dispute obviously the white thing. I, I like the landowning thing, to be honest with you. I think that does put you in a better spot to where you are, uh, mm-hmm. You it makes more sense for you to have a say in things if you don't own land or property. It's kind of like, well, why the fuck do I give a shit what you have to say? Uh, right. you, you don't really have a stake in this, exactly. Uh, yeah, so but, he does get into yeah. that, yeah, later on in the book yeah. where he does yeah, make that point, and also the point that you're giving the ability to vote to all these people that don't have a stake in this, and they're just going to vote to take more from the people that do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Likewise, all the newly created successor states, with the sole exception of Yugoslavia, adopted uh, democratic republican constitutions. In Turkey and Greece, the monarchies were overthrown. And even where monarchies remain nominally in existence, as in Great Britain, Italy, Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, and the Scandinavian countries, monarchs no longer exercise any governing power. Universal adult suffrage was introduced and all government power was vested in parliaments and public officials. The world historic transformation from the ancient regime of royal or princely rulers to the new democratic republican age of popularly elected or chosen rulers may be also characterized as that from Austria and the Austrian way to that of America and the American way. This is true for several reasons. First, America initiated the war, and America brought Austria. it to a close. Oh, Austria, my bad. Yeah. And America brought it to a close. Austria lost, and America won. Austria was ruled by a monarch, Emperor Franz Joseph, and America by a democratically elected president, uh, Professor Woodward, Wood, yeah, Woodrow Wilson. More importantly, however, World War I was not a traditional war fought over limited territorial objectives, but an ideological one. And Austria and America respectively were, and were perceived as such by the contending parties, the two countries that most clearly embodied the ideas in conflict with each other. World War I began as an old-fashioned territorial dispute. However, with the early involvement in the ultimate official entry into the war, the United States in April 1917, the war war took on a new ideological dimension. The United States has been, had been founded as a republic, and the de- democratic principle inherent in the idea of a republic had only recently been carried to victory as a result of the violent defeat and devastation of the secessionist confederacy by the centralist union government. At the time of World War I, this triumphant ideology of an expansionist democratic republicanism had found its very personification in then U.S. President Wilson. Under Wilson's administration, the European, European war became an ideological mission to make the world safe for democracy and free of dynastic rulers. 
When in March 1917, the U.S. allied Tsar Nicholas II was forced to abdicate and a new Democratic Republican government was established in Russia under Kerensky, Wilson was elated. With the Tsar gone, the war had finally become a purely ideological conflict of good against evil. Wilson and his closest foreign policy advisors, George G. Heron and Colonel House, disliked the Germany of the Kaiser, the aristocracy, and the military elite. But they hated Austria. As Eric von Kuhnhelt Ledding had, has characterized the views of Wilson and the American left, Austria was far more wicked than Germany. It existed in contradiction with the Mazinian principle of the national state. It inherited many traditions as well as symbols from the Holy Roman Empire, empire double-headed eagle, black gold colors, etc. Its dynasty had once ruled over Spain. It had led the counter-reformation, headed the Holy Alliance, fought against the Risorgimento, suppressed the Magyar Rebellion under Kossuth, and morally supported the monarchical experiment in Mexico. Habsburg, the very name evoked memories of Roman Catholicism of the Armada, the Inquisition, Metternich, Lafayette, Jail de Olmuz, and Sylvia Pellico and Brune Spielberg's fortress. Such a state had to be shattered. Such a dynasty had to disappear. As an increasingly ideological motivated conflict, the war quickly degenerated into a total war. Everywhere, the entire national economy was militarized. War socialism. And the time honor distinction between combatants and non-combatants and military and civilian fell by the wayside. For this reason, World War I resulted in many more civilian casualties, victims of starvation and disease than of soldiers killed on the battlefield. Moreover, due to the ideological character of the war, at its end, no compromise, peace, but only total surrender, humiliation, and punishment were possible. did want to add in this, when I was reading through this, it really uh, reminded me of a lot of just modern wars in general. And the idea, I mean, it's not really, I mean, you think of the war on terror. Like, uh, that was, in, in a sense, an ideological war. Uh, and so it's, it's a lot of the same idea. It makes it, when you make it ideological, uh, it makes it way easier to commit atrocities. And, you know, mm. which he will get into that later and why that's kind of a function of democracy uh, right. and, and less so of, like, monarchy. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, there, there's definitely something to there. Uh, and and the, the, the concept of, like, no compromise, peace, only total surrender, humiliation and punishment as possible. Like, we're mm. even seeing that now with Russia. Like, they've, you know, slapped away uh, peace talks so many times. Uh, yeah. it's, so it's like... It's the same idea. Once you make this ideological, then to compromise it in their eyes would be to, you know, give way to evil. And it's like, no, it's not as simple as that. Just like it's not as simple as Ukraine bad or, or Russia bad in this modern conflict. It's, you know, much more complicated than that. So, yeah. Yeah. So the main point that he just made there, which is like one of the main themes throughout the book, is that democracy blurs the line between who are the ruling class and who are the ruled and it like drags the ruled into the ruling class's wars so all these regular civilians are getting killed even though it is a war and should be a war between the rulers and not involving the innocent people yeah which it more so was in like feudal monarchies but we'll definitely get into that right. later uh, this intro is uh, just kind of setting the stage. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves yeah. a little bit, but yeah. it's hard not to. Yeah, and I uh, feel like how he like kind of throws in like just the way that he words some of these things. Like he calls it the European War, just to kind of uh, just hammer that point home that the U.S. should not have been in it at oh, all. Yeah. 
he, uh, he, he calls Woodrow Wilson a professor, which is true. I mean, he was, but that I felt like that was kind of a dig, knowing yeah. how he feels about professors. And then he called the uh, the Union during the Civil War the centralist Union state or something, because this yeah. book is going to have a lot to do with uh, decentralization as well. So yeah, and I it like really those does, digs that yeah. he throws in there. Yeah, and it goes a lot into the whole the stuff that went on with World War One and stuff because that does play a lot into this. And World yeah. War One is one of those conflicts that like you know, is really fucking retarded when you look back at it. <laughs> like, like for most people don't have this kind of knowledge of history. So they, uh, they just assume world war one, Oh, bad guys, good guys. And they don't really know the details of it, but you know, it, really even the most novice persons, when they start digging into it, you're like, Oh, this is fucking retarded. <laughs> and it right. sets the stage for so much bullshit. Um, yeah. and which you'll even get into in this. Yeah, this uh, when was this book written again? Like late nineties, I want to say. I think it was written in two thousand, actually. Two thousand, all right. Yeah. Just for yeah, a little bit of context there. So he he does have a little bit of like modern history yeah. in there as well, where he's talking about Yugoslavia and shit. So yeah. Germany had to give up her monarchy, and Alsace Lorraine was returned to France as before the Franco-Prussian War of eighteen seventy to seventy-one. The new German Republic was burdened with heavy long-term reparations. Germany was demilitarized. The German Saarland was occupied by the French. And the East large territories had to be ceded to Poland. However, Germany was not dismembered and destroyed. Wilson had reserved this fate for Austria. With the deposition of the Habsburgs, the entire Austrian-Hungarian Empire was dismembered. As the crowning achievement of Wilson's foreign policy, two new and artificial states Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia were carved out of the former empire. Austria herself for centuries, one of Europe's great powers, was reduced in size to its small German-speaking heartland. And as another of Wilson's legacies, tiny Austria was forced to surrender its entirely German province of southern Tyrolia, extending to the Brenner Pass to Italy. Since 1918, Austria has disappeared from the map of international power politics. Since the United States has emerged as the world's leading power, the American age, the Pax Americana, has begun. The principle of democratic republicanism has triumphed. It was to triumph again, but with the end of World War II, and once more, or so it seemed, with the collapse of the Soviet Empire in the late 1980s and early 1990s. For some contemporary observers, the end of history had arrived. The American idea of universal and global democracy has finally come into its own. All right, I'll let you take over these next two pages, and me and you will swap two pages uh, back and forth as we go. Just kind of, right. you know, obviously, you know, if you're if it's still mid paragraph, finish the paragraph. But uh, yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah. no, I'll just stop mid sentence. You yeah. know, uh, real quick, I, I did a super chat from JC making it rain from a helicopter. Hell yeah, uh, appreciate the five dollars, JC, and you showing up for these. That's uh, right. Uh, um, so. Because I am a hoppy, and whenever I uh, do go to a strip club, I make it rain with communists. So. Yes. All right. <laughs> go ahead, man. Uh, yes. Meanwhile, Habsburg, Austria, and the prototypical pre-democratic Austrian experience assumed no more than historical interest. To be sure, it was not that Austria had not achieved any recognition. Even democratic intellectuals and artists from any field of intellectual and cultural endeavor could not ignore the enormous level of productivity of Austro-Hungarian and in particular Viennese culture. Indeed, the list of great names associated with the late 19th and early 20th century Vienna is seemingly endless. However, rarely has this enormous intellectual and cultural productivity been brought in a systematic connection with the pre-democratic tradition of the Habsburg monarchy. 
Instead, if it has not been considered a mere coincidence, the productivity of Austrian Viennese culture has been presented, quote, politically correctly as proof of the positive synergistic effects of multi-ethnic society and of multiculturalism. I'm going to read all the footnotes, not just kidding. However, at the end of the 20th century, increasing evidence is accumulating that rather than marking the end of history, the American system itself is in a deep crisis. Since the late 1960s or early 1970s, real wage incomes in the United States and in Western Europe have stagnated or even fallen. In Western Europe in particular, unemployment rates have been steadily edging upward and are currently exceeding 10%. The public debt has risen everywhere to astronomical heights, in many cases exceeding a country's annual gross domestic product. Real quick, all the stuff he's saying now has continued in the 20 years since he yeah. wrote this. But So yeah. it, it is funny how when uh, you, the, the sign of a good book is when it's still from an older book, it still rings true today, but, but go on. Yeah, this book is yeah evergreen. And when I read it again in uh, 2020, I was like, holy shit, like so much of this – still applies because when i'd read it in 2016 it was you know pre-covid and stuff just reading it in that mindset afterwards was yeah kind of yeah. crazy similarly the social security systems everywhere are on or near the verge of bankruptcy further the collapse of the soviet empire represented not so much a triumph of democracy as the bankruptcy of the idea of socialism and it therefore also contained an indictment against the American Western system of democratic rather than dictatorial socialism. Moreover, throughout the Western Hemisphere, national, ethnic, and cultural divisiveness, separatism, and secessionism are on the rise. Hey, is he speaking bad about secessionism? Come on. Wilson's multicultural democratic creations, Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia, have broken apart. In the U.S., less than a century of full-blown democracy has resulted in steadily increasing moral degeneration, family and social disintegration, and cultural decay in the form of continually rising rates of divorce, illegitimacy, abortion, and crime. Love that. As a result of an ever-expanding list of non-discrimination, affirmative action, laws, and non-discriminatory, multicultural, egalitarian immigration policies. Every, oh, here, here we go now. Everybody, this is where everybody starts hating them. Every nook and cranny of the American society is affected by government management and forced integration. Accordingly, social strife and racial, ethnic, and moral cultural tension and hostility have increased dramatically. In light of these disillusioning experiences, Fundamental doubts concerning the virtues of the American system have resurfaced. What would have happened, it is being asked again, if in accordance with his re-election promise, Woodrow Wilson had kept the U.S. out of World War I? By virtue of its counterfactual nature, the answer to a question such as this can never be empirically confirmed or falsified. However, this does not make the question meaningless or the answer arbitrary. To the contrary, based on an understanding of the actual historical events and personalities involved, the question concerning the most likely alternative course of history can be answered in detail and with considerable confidence. If the United States had followed a strict non-interventionist foreign policy, it is likely that the intra-European conflict would have ended in late 1916 or early 1917 as the result of several peace initiatives 
most notably by the Austrian emperor, Charles I. Moreover, the war would have been concluded with a, a mutually acceptable and face-saving compromise peace rather than the actual dictate. Consequently, Austria-Hungary, Germany, and Russia would have remained traditional monarchies instead of being turned into short-lived democratic republics. All right. With a Russian czar and a German and Austrian Kaiser in place, it would have been almost impossible for the Bolsheviks to seize power in Russia. In reaction to a growing communist threat in Western Europe for the fascists and National Socialists to do the same in Italy and Germany. Millions of victims of communism, National Socialism, and World War II would have been saved. The extent of government interference with and control of the private economy in the United States and in Western Europe would ha never have reached the heights seen today. And rather than Central and Eastern, Eastern Europe, and consequently half of the globe, falling into communist hands and for more than 40 years being plundered, devastated, and forcibly insulated from Western markets, all of Europe and the entire globe would have remained integrated economically as in the 19th century in a worldwide system of division of labor and cooperation. World living standards would have grown immensely higher than they actually have. Before the backdrop of this thought experiment and the actual course of events, the American system and the Pax Americana appear. Contrary to official history, which is always written by its victors, from the perspective of the proponents of democracy to be nothing short of an unmitigated disaster, and Habsburg, Austria, and the pre-democratic age appear most appealing. Certainly, then, it would be worthwhile to take a systematic look at the historic transformation from monarchy to democracy. While history will play an important role, the following is not the work of a historian. However, but of a political economist and philosopher, there are no new or unfamiliar data presented. Rather, insofar as a claim to originality is made, it is that the following studies contain new and unfamiliar interpretations of generally known and accepted facts. Moreover, that is the interpretation of facts, rather than the facts themselves, which are of central concern to the scientists and the subject of most contention and debate. One may, for example, readily agree on the fact that in the 19th century, America, America average living standards, tax rates, and economic regulations were comparatively low while in the 20th century, living standards, taxes, and regulations were high. Yet, were 20th century living standards higher because of higher taxes and regulations or despite higher taxes and regulations? I.e., would living standards be even higher if taxes and regulations had remained as low as they had been during the 19th century? Likewise, yeah, for sure. Likewise, one may readily agree that welfare payments and crime rates were low during the 1950s and that both are now comparatively high. Yet has crime increased because of rising welfare systems or despite them? Or have crime and welfare nothing to do with each other and is the relationship between the two phenomena uh, merely coincidental? The facts do not provide an answer to such questions and no amount of statistical manipulation of data can possibly change this fact. The data of history are logically compatible with any of such rival interpretations, and historians, insofar as they are just historians, have no way of deciding in favor of one or the other. If one is to make a rational choice among such rival and incompatible interpretations, this is only possible if one has a theory at one's disposable disposal, or at least a theoretical proposition whose valid validity does not depend on historical experience but can be established a priori 
i.e. once and for all by means of the intellectual apprehension or comprehension of the nature of things. In some circles, this kind of theory is held in low esteem. And some philosophers, especially the empiricist, positivist variety, have declared any such theory off-limits or even impossible. This is not a philosophical treatise devoted to a discussion of issues of epistemology and ontology. Here and in the following, I do not want to directly refute the empiricist positive thesis that there is no such thing as an a priori theory. Propositions which assert something about reality and can be validated independent of the outcome of any future experience. It is only appropriate, however, to acknowledge from the outset that I consider this thesis, indeed the entire empiricist positivist research program, which can be interpreted as a result of the application of the egalitarian principles of democracy to the realm of knowledge and research, and has therefore dominated ideological during, ideologically during most of the 20th century, as fundamentally mistaken and thoroughly refuted. Here it suffices to, prevent just, to present just a few examples of what is meant by a priori theory, and in particular to cite some such examples from the realm of the social sciences in order to put any possible suspicion to rest and recommend my theoretical approach is intuitively plausible and in accordance with common sense. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, there's there are a few things that I... Yeah, could say there. So he's getting into like this, yeah, uh, a priori uh, logic now, which is sort of a Misesian thing, kind of, where he's basically alluding to the fact that all of these things that he's talking about are sort of a, they're a result of human action and they're things that are observable. And you can't really quantify these things with uh, empirical evidence because you're talking about like a really complex economy essentially involving all of the people in the entire market. Yeah. So he is, uh, he's starting to get into that. He gets into that more uh, in the next chapter. And he did also uh, in that uh, passage that you just read, uh, mention the fact that the U S getting involved in world war one is what basically set in motion, the rise of Hitler and the rise of the Soviet union and world war two. So all of that, uh, which we already know, uh, but I'm glad that he you know, did point that out as well. Yeah, there was a lot in the in there. Uh, basically, World War One fucked everything up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Treaty of Versailles fucked over Germany to the point where that situation escalated to the point where they, uh, yeah, it, it led to the rise of Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what else I was going to mention there. He, uh, oh, he did mention um, the fact that uh, the stuff that he was talking about about uh, how you can't really provide the counterfactual, and this is something a government does like all the time, like with the. 2008 crash or something like that where they're always saying well well if the fed hadn't intervened it would have been even worse and you can't actually like argue against that with uh empirical evidence necessarily because you don't have it but you can argue against it with a priori truths if you know how economics works essentially yeah. what the fed is actually doing Be- so making the argument why theory is important because it's what explains shit so like otherwise you're just providing facts so yeah ace has entered the chat now yeah <laughs> All right. yeah and i just love the fact that he uh like he weaves between like history economics and libertarian theory throughout this book and he kind of just like he's he crushes all of those different things so love it i love that uh, all right, where do we leave off here? Examples, uh, you know, uh, page XVI. Ah, yes. Examples of what I mean by a priori theory are no material thing can be at two places at once. 
No two objects can occupy the same place. A straight line is the shortest line between two points. No two straight lines can enclose a space. Whatever object is red all over cannot be green, blue, yellow, etc. all over. Whatever object is colored is also extended. Oh, he's really attacking the postmodernist now, man. Whatever object has shape has also size. If A is a part of B and B is a part of C, then A is a part of C. 4 equals 3 plus 1. 6 equals uh, 2 times 33 minus 30 in parentheses. <laughs> Implausibly, empiricists must denigrate such propositions as mere linguistic syntactic conventions without any empirical content, i.e. empty tautologies. In contrast to this view and in accordance with common sense, I understand the same propositions as asserting some simple but fundamental truths about structure of re about the structure of reality. And in accordance with common sense, too, I would regard someone who wanted to test these propositions or who reported facts contradicting or deviating from them as confused. A priori theory trumps and corrects experience and logic overrules observation and not vice versa. More importantly, examples of a priori theory also abound in the political sciences, in particular in the fields of political economy and philosophy. Human action is an actor's purposeful pursuit of valued ends with scarce means. No one can purposefully not act. Every action is aimed at improving the actor's subjective well-being above what it otherwise would have been. A larger quantity of a good is valued more highly than a smaller quantity of the same good. Satisfaction earlier is preferred over satisfaction later. Oh, now he's getting into, uh, <laughs> what is it called again? Uh, time preference? Not just time preference, but uh, oh, I forget the name of it. It's, it's something that Bob Murphy disputes, and I think Bob Murphy like has a, has a decent point there, but um, I'll move on. The only thing I know, Bob Murphy, the ar argumentation theory uh, or argumentation ethics. But he disagrees like... with argumentation ethics. Oh, but I don't. Agrees... I don't feel like that's argument A right there. But go on. He agrees with the uh, Austrian uh, pure time reference. I think is the name of it, mm -hmm. where he he makes uh, Bob Murphy makes some arguments that there are certain situations where you do not value a certain good now over later. Mm, yeah, I think kind of sees it more as like a snapshot, but yeah, it, I, I yeah. think it's I think it's kind of interesting, and I kind of agree with him on that. But I, I would have to hear his argument. And I'm sure maybe in a specific circumstance, but generally speaking, I'd say that's probably true. I mean, if you're saying you can have this thing, this specific thing later, I know he gets some time preference later, and the idea being that you'll have mm -hmm. more satisfaction later if you wait. But if it's the same amount of satisfaction, satisfaction now and satisfaction later. I mean, I guess it right. depends on like, I'm sure there's a whole lot of nuance to it because it could be like, I don't want ice cream now. Uh, exactly. You know, yeah. But like, you know, there, you know, maybe when I'm hungry later, I'll want ice cream. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. But generally speaking, uh, you know, all things uh, constant or whatever, I, I would like assuming there's a constant hunger for ice cream, you would prefer the, <laughs> the ice cream now as opposed to later. But yeah, yeah. All right, we're, we're getting too autistic now. But generally, <laughs> I'd say that is a that holds true. Generally speaking, satisfaction earlier is preferred over satisfaction. Later. Generally, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. Production must precede consumption. What is consumed now cannot be consumed again in the future. If the price of a good is lowered, 
either the same quantity or more will be bought than otherwise. Prices fixed below market clearing prices will lead to lasting shortages. Without private property and factors of production, there can be no factor prices. And without factor prices, cost accounting is impossible. Taxes are an imposition on producers and or wealth owners and reduce production and or wealth below what it otherwise would have been. Interpersonal conflict is possible only if and insofar as things are scarce. No thing or part of a thing can be owned exclusively by more than one person at a time. Democracy, majority rule is incompatible with private property, individual ownership and rule. No form of taxation can be uniform, equal, but every taxation involves the creation of two distinct and unequal classes of taxpayers versus tax receiver consumers. This is what we were alluding to a little while ago. Property and property titles are distinct entities and an increase of the latter without a corresponding increase of the former does not raise social wealth, but leads to a redistribution of existing wealth. For an empiricist, propositions such as these must be interpreted as either stating nothing empirical at all and being mere speech conventions or as forever testable and tentative hypotheses. Thus, as to common sense, they are neither. In fact, it strikes us as utterly disingenuous to portray these propositions as having no empirical content. Clearly, they state something about real things and events. And it seems similarly disingenuous to regard these propositions as hypotheses. Hypothetical propositions, as commonly understood, are statements such as these. Children prefer McDonald's over Burger King. The worldwide ratio of beef to pork spending is two to one. Germans prefer Spain over Greece as a vacation destination. Longer education in public schools will lead to higher wages. The volume of shopping shortly before Christmas exceeds that of shortly after Christmas. Catholics vote predominantly Democratic. Yeah, fuck you, Andrew, popular liberty. Japanese save a quarter of their disposable income. Germans drink more beer than Frenchmen. The United States produces more computers than any other country. Most inhabitants of the U.S. are white and of European descent. Fuck yeah. Propositions such as these require the collection of historical data to be validated. And they must be continually reevaluated because the asserted relationships are not necessary but contingent ones. That is because there is nothing inherently impossible, inconceivable, or plain wrong in assuming the opposite of the above that children prefer Burger King to McDonald's or Germans, per Greece to Spain. This, however, is not the case with the former theoretical propositions. To negate these propositions and assume, for instance, that a smaller quantity of a good might be preferred to a larger one of the same good, that what is being consumed now can possibly be consumed again in the future, or that cost accounting could be accomplished also without factor prices, strikes one as absurd. And anyone engaged in, the in empirical research and testing to determine which one of two contradictory propositions such as these does or does not hold appears to be either a fool or a fraud. Yeah. According to the approach adopted here, theoretical propositions like the ones just cited are accepted for what they apparently are as statements about necessary facts and relations. 
is such they can be illustrated by historical data, but historical data can neither establish nor refute them. To the contrary, even if historical experience is necessary in order to initially grasp a theoretical insight, this insight concerns facts and relations that extend and transcend logically beyond any particular historical experience. Hence, once a theoretical insight has been grasped, it can be employed as a constant and permanent standard or crit of criticism, i.e., for the purpose of correcting, revising, and rejecting, as well as of accepting historical reports and interpretations. For instance, based on theoretical insights, it must be considered impossible that higher taxes and regulations can be the cause of higher living standards. Living standards can be higher only despite higher taxes and regulations. Similarly, theoretical insights can rule out reports such as that increased consumption has led to increased production, economic growth, that below market clearing maximum prices has, have resulted in unsold surpluses of goods or that the absence of democracy has been responsible for the economic malfunctioning of socialism as nonsensical. As a matter of theory, only more saving and capital production and or advances in productivity can lead to increased production. Only guaranteed above market clearing prices can result in lasting surpluses. And only the absence of private property is responsible for the economic plight under socialism. And to reiterate, none of these insights require further empirical study or, or testing. To study or test them is a sign of confusion. Uh, I did want to take a moment to yeah. say, like, I think that is the beauty of theory. Like, theory makes – it's kind of like a hack for life. Like, when you do start to understand theory, especially like a, you know, like a you know, theory such as, like, libertarianism or something, it's kind of like – it makes it so easy to just, just throw out so much shit. Because uh, mm -hmm. it allows you, it, it gives you a, a, a template to uh, kind of understand the world. Because you get thrown all these facts at you and how, how do I interpret this? How do I interpret that? And when you have a theory to work with, it makes it way easier. Because uh, it's not even a, when a lot of the, a lot of us guys that get into this and learn theory, not all of us are really that, into, some of us aren't really like genius or anything. It's just that we have this like thing that's pretty easy to understand, has very basic, uh, you know, building blocks to it that are pretty easy to understand. Uh, and so it, it makes it pretty easy to cut through the bullshit. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, uh, when I noted earlier that this is not the work of a historian, but of a political economist and philosopher, I obviously did not believe this to be a disadvantage. Quite to the contrary. As has been indicated, historians, qua historians, cannot rationally decide between incompatible interpretations of the same set of data or sequence events. Hence, they are unable to provide answers to most important social questions. The principal advantage that the political economist and philosopher has over the mere historian and the benefits to be gained from the study of political economy and philosophy of the by the historian is his knowledge of pure a priori social theory, which enables him to avoid otherwise unavoidable errors in the interpretation of sequences of complex historical data and present a theoretically corrected or reconstructed and a decidedly critical or revisionist account of history. Based on and motivated by fundamental theoretical insights from both political economy and political philosophy ethics, in the following studies I propose the revision of three central, indeed almost mythical, beliefs and interpretations of concerning modern history. In accordance with elementary theoretical insights regarding the nature of private property and ownership versus public property 
and administration and of firms versus governments or states, I propose first a revision of the prevailing view of traditional hereditary monarchies and provide instead an uncharacteristically favorable interpretation of monarchy and the monarchical experience. In short, monarchical government is reconstructed theoretically as privately owned government, which in turn is explained as promoting future-orientedness and a concern for capital values and economic calculation by the government ruler. Second, equally unorthodox, but by the same theoretical uh, token, democracy and the democratic experience are cast in an untypically unfavorable light. Democratic government is reconstructed as publicly owned government, which is explained as leading to present-orientedness and disregard or neglect of capital values in government rulers, and the transition from monarchy to democracy is interpreted accordingly as civilizational decline. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, what I was going to say is like when he was talking about, yeah, all of the, how we just know these things to be true because they're a priori. Libertarians get hit by like non-libertarians on that all the time because it's basically just like, no, what I'm saying is true, but it is. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, an observable truth. And a lot of people, I think, have a hard time yeah, dealing with that. Um, yeah, and now he's setting up uh, like kind of what the main premise is going to be throughout the book here, where he's going to contrast democracy with monarchy, and he's going to envision theoretical monarchies that can be sort of as close as possible to private rulership, I guess, if we want to call it that. Uh, yeah. And I cannot emphasize enough, he is not a monarchist. He is an anarchist. Right. He is making the case that monarchy is preferable to democracy, but anarchy is preferable to monarchy. His only yes. point in this whole book is that the move from monarchy to democracy was a regression, not a progression. Right. So, you know, and it's not to say he wants everyone to be monarchy. He's saying it's preferable. He would prefer the whole world to be anarchy, especially probably in his specific covenant community type style uh, anarchy. So yeah, 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 yeah. He gets into that. He is an ANCAP for sure. People who probably haven't read the book call him a monarchist, and he is not. He is he's yeah. doing he's uh, going to yeah, as he said, uh, talk about monarchy in a particularly favorable light and democracy in a non-favorable light to illustrate the points that he's making here. And I think that he does it brilliantly. I think that he's correct about the points that he's about to make in this book and. Oh, I do too. I think monarchy is preferable. Yeah. yeah, more of this. It's more of an attack on democracy than it is. Yeah, which it, it, the whole yeah. the, the whole thing with this book is it's so like to the modern person who has been inundated with all this bullshit their entire life. It's sound. It sounds blasphemous, and this is why people are such binary thinkers, and they immediately just go, "Oh my god, what are you a fucking monarchist? You want us all to be ruled by fucking silly little kings?" And it's like, no, I just think that's preferable to the bullshit you have now. I think. The construct mm -hmm. that you love is worse than the previous construct, but I don't yeah. prefer that construct. So, yeah. and, and this is where, uh, you know, a lot of libertarians have a hard time sort of dealing with the fact that we might prefer a certain state over another state. Like, oh, like I would prefer Florida over New York right yeah. now. And I, th I think that's just for obvious reasons. Or like, you know, even more extremely, I would prefer Switzerland's government to North Korea's. Yeah, like there's nothing unlibertarian about preferring the, you know, preferring the less bad government. Yes. Um, 
yeah, so, I mean, that's essentially what he's doing here. Uh, it's a preference thing. And I, I do want to point out, I do like uh, the fact that uh, the title of this book, uh, Democracy, the God That Failed, is a reference to uh, a book from like the 1940s called The God That Failed that was written by a bunch of former communists. Yeah. And he, and he does compare democracy to communism in this book as well. So I like how he's kind of just hinting yeah. at that, like democracy as being similar to communism in many ways. Yeah, uh, fun little fact. I don't remember specifically the name of the guy, but I know – uh, before Rothbard being, uh, you know, Hoppe's mentor, his previous mentor was like some, you know, famous commie. Uh, so he, there is a lot of, if you mm -hmm. pay attention, if you come from the commie tradition, there's a lot of like commie Easter eggs and a lot of Hoppe's stuff because he does take a lot of their, he takes a lot of the good stuff from like the commie bullshit and then applies it to his stuff. Cause like he has his own, like he's talked before about how they have a good point and having a class theory. You just think their class theory is retarded. Uh, and he, he, there's, there's a lot, there's a rich, uh, uh, amount of stuff like pulled from like, you know, commie or lefty stuff from Hoppe, which is mm -hmm. ironic considering how much, uh, he is known for like shitting on commies and lefties, but yeah. Right. Well, I think, uh, there is truth to like Marxist class theory. It's just that the identification of who those classes are mm -hmm. is completely, uh, incorrect, uh, on the part of Marxists where, I think the, the actual class warfare that we have here, as Hoppe references in this book a lot, is the ruling class versus the rules class. Mm. Yeah. All right. Uh, still more fundamental and unorthodox is the proposed third revision. Despite the comparatively favorable portrait presented of monarchy, I am not a monarchist. Oh, you don't say. And the following is not a defense of monarchy. Instead, the position taken toward monarchy is this. If one must have a state defined as an agency that exercises a compulsory territorial monopoly over ultimate decision-making, jurisdiction, and of taxation, then it is economically and ethically advantageous to choose monarchy over democracy. But this leaves the question open whether or not a state is necessary, i.e., if there exists an alternative to both monarchy and democracy. History, again, cannot provide an answer to this question. By definition, there can be no such thing as an experience of counterfactuals and alternatives. And all one finds in modern history, at least insofar as the developed Western world is concerned, is the history of states and statism. Only theory can again provide an answer for theoretical propositions, as just illustrated, concern necessary facts and relations, and accordingly, just as they can be used to rule certain historical reports and interpretations out as false or impossible, so can they be used to rule certain other things in as constructively possible, even if such things have never been seen or tried. In complete contrast to the orthodox opinion on the matter, then, elementary social theory shows and will be explained as showing that no state as justified can be justified, be it economically or ethically. He is still an anarchist after all. Rather, every state, regardless of its constitution, is economically and ethically deficient. Every monopolist, including one of ultimate decision-making, is bad from the viewpoint of consumers. Monopoly is hereby understood in its classical meaning, as the absence of free entry into a particular line of production, only one agency. A, you may produce X. Any such monopolist is bad for consumers because 
shielded from potential new entrants into his line of production. The price for his product will be higher and the quality lower than otherwise. Further, no one would agree to a provision that allowed a monopolist of ultimate decision-making, i.e. the final arbiter and judge in every case of interpersonal conflict, to determine unilaterally, without the consent of everyone concerned, the price that one must pay for his service. The power to tax, that is, is ethically unacceptable. Indeed, a monopolist of ultimate decision-making, equipped with the power to tax, does not just produce less and lower quality justice, but he will produce more and more bads, i.e. injustice and aggression. Thus, the choice between monarchy and democracy concerns a choice between two defective social orders. So he is saying they're both states, they're both monopolies on, if you want to call them monopolies on violence, sure. And he is talking about uh, sort of the government production of defense here. He does have a whole, Hoppe is known for talking a lot about private production of defense. And it's a great book on it, yeah. Yeah, he does, yeah. Um, where was I? Uh, in fact, modern history provides ample illustration of the economic and ethical shortcomings of all states, whether monarchic or democratic. Moreover, the same social theory demonstrates positively the possibility of an alternative social order free of the economic and ethical shortcomings of monarchy and democracy, as well as any other form of state. The term adopted here for a social system free of monopoly and taxation is natural order. Other names used elsewhere by others to refer to the same thing include ordered anarchy, private property anarchism, anarcho-capitalism, auto-government, private law society, and pure capitalism. Above and beyond monarchy and democracy, the following is concerned with the logic of a natural order, where every scarce resource is owned privately, where every enterprise is funded by voluntarily paying customers or private donors, and where entry into every line of production, including that of justice, police, and defense services is free. It is in contrast to a natural order that the economic and ethical errors of monarchy are brought into relief. It is before the backdrop of a natural order that the still greater errors involved in democracy are clarified and that the historic transformation from monarchy to democracy is revealed as a civilizational decline. And it is because of the natural order's logical status as the theoretical answer to the fundamental problem of social order of how to protect liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness that the following also includes extensive discussions of strategic matters and concerns i.e. of the requirements of social change, and in particular, the radical transformation from democracy to natural order. So he does later in the book uh, also talk about what he just said there, like how could we possibly get from uh, democracy or a democratic system to uh, this natural order or anarcho-capitalist system, and how would you deal with, you know, meeting out all of the uh, property that is owned by the government currently and things like that, which gets kind of interesting as well, I think. Regardless of the unorthodox interpretations and conclusions reached in the following studies, the theories and theorems used to do so are definitely not new or unorthodox. Indeed, if one assumes, as I do, that a priori social theory and theorems exist, 
then one should also expect that most of such knowledge is old and that theoretical progress is painstakingly slow. This indeed appears to be the case. Hence, even if my conclusions may seem radical or extreme, as a theoretician, I am decidedly a conservative. I place myself in an intellectual tradition that stretches back to at least the 16th century, Spanish scholastics, and that has found its clearest modern expression in the so-called Austrian School of Economics, the tradition of pure social theory as as represented above all by Karl Menger, Eugen von Bombaverk, Ludwig von Mises, and Murray N. Rothbard. It's called Eugen? I thought it was like Eugen or Eugene or some shit. Eugen von Bombaverk. That's that's legit the proper – all right. I believe so. I'll take your word for it. Uh, I do want to point out David Brady pointed out the – who was – Jürgen Habermas. Or Habernas. Habernas is also Frankfurt Marxist who created critical theory. Okay. That was uh, who uh, Hoppe originally was like a. Uh, that was his original mentor before he kind of moved over to the Austrian school. Yeah. All right. At the outset, I noted Habsburg, Austria, and the United States of America as the countries associated most closely with the old monarchical regime and the new and current democratic republican era respectively here we encounter habsburg austria again and discover another reason why the following studies also may be called an austrian view of the american age the austrian school of economics ranks among the most outstanding of the many intellectual and artistic traditions and autistic uh, originating in pre-world war one austria as one of the many results of the destruction of the Habsburg Empire, however, the school's third generation led by Ludwig von Mises was uprooted in Austria and on the European continent and with Mises' immigration to New York City in 1940 exported to the United States of America. And it would be in America when, where Austrian social theory was, has taken root most firmly, owing in particular to the work of Mises' outstanding American student, Murray and Rothbard. I want to take a moment to point out a lot of people ask, like, uh, I was actually talking to David Brady the other day, and he was, yeah, I I was saying, um, uh, I I was kind of like, I told him, I was like, I think Hoppe is the, you know, pinnacle of libertarian, uh, you know, academics. And it's like, but you almost Mm. feel bad saying that because it's, it's really entirely due to him, uh, you know, Mm. kind of, you know, uh, yeah, how do I say this? Uh, kind of, uh, jumping off of the work of Rothbard, and then Rothbard's the same thing off of Mises, and then Mises right. off of Bauwerk, and it's it's so it is kind of like a constant thing. So it's like it's it almost you almost feel shitty saying Hoppe's better than Rothbard because it's like Rothbard kind of gave him a leg up. It's kind of like my, you know with my kids, my youngest daughter is like way smarter than my oldest, but that's because my oldest like really took a lot of time to actually when she my, my youngest was growing up to teach her shit. So yeah. like, and so my youngest kind of got that like boost, you know, and like, kind of like she got to work off of everything that my other daughter had learned before her. And it's yeah. the same idea with these guys. So, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I yeah. think, um, I think Hoppe gets less wrong than Rothbard does. Like yes. Rothbard is very wrong about abortion, uh, especially in like For New Liberty. I don't know if he might've changed his view on that later, but in like For, For New Liberty, you find some things that Rothbard says in there in like the seventies were. I'm like, yeah, this guy's getting some of this pretty wrong here. And in like ethics of liberty, I 
I disagree with them on some of the like child rights stuff. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about where you say you own your kids? I actually kind of agree with him on that, but <laughs> um, no, no, no. Like, I think that you. I mean, I don't. I don't know if we want to get into it that specifically, but I think no, I don't, we don't want to get into it. But yeah, <laughs> I think I think you hold some of your child's rights in proxy. I would say I don't know how else to describe that, but I do think that there that you do have an obligation to like feed your children and take care of them. And I think if you're not doing that, then I do think that it is upon somebody to intervene in that scenario. If that, yeah, if that is actually happening, but yeah, um, what I was going to say is Hoppe is acknowledging here, uh, and in the first chapter, especially as well, once we get into the time preference stuff, he totally acknowledges like, yeah, I'm drawing all of this from Mises and Rothbard, basically like from these thinkers that came before and like all these other thinkers, he takes that and then he expands on it and he advances that. And in this book, like, I think like nobody has kind of like. This is one of the books where it makes you think in a totally different way than you would have otherwise. So, I, yeah. I mean, books no. like that really get better as, than that. As silly as it may sound, I had a, uh, I did a uh, episode a long time ago with a uh, fucking what's his face from End Demo- or End Democracy or Hopping.org, uh, Jared, Jared, and mm-hmm. uh, and we were talking about the specific thing, and uh, I made the comparison. It's kind of like a. Like Pokemon, whereas like Mises was Squirtle and fucking uh, Rothbard was like uh, War Turtle, and then fucking uh, uh, Hoppa was Blastoise, and it, and it really is just kind of like their evolutions of each other is very a good way to look at it is is, is a good way to think of it. Uh, as silly as it's silly and elementary as that fucking is, but it applies, I think, for sure. But all right, the following studies are written from the vantage point of modern Austrian social theory. Throughout, the influence of Ludwig von Mises and even more of Murray and Rothbard is noticeable. The elementary theorems of political economy and philosophy which are employed here for the purpose of reconstructing reconstructing history and proposing a constructive alternative democracy have found their most detailed treatment in Mises and Rothbard's principal theoretical works. As well, many of the subjects discussed in the following have also been dealt with in their many applied works. Furthermore, the following studies share with Mises and especially Rothbard a fundamental and robust anti-Sayus and pro-private property and free enterprise position. This notwithstanding, the following studies can in two regards claim originality. On the one hand, they provide for a more profound understanding of modern political history. In their applied works, Mises and Rothbard discuss most of the 20th century central economic and political issues and events. Socialism versus capitalism, monopoly versus competition, private versus public property, production and trade versus taxation, regulation and redistribution, etc., and both gave detailed accounts of the rapid growth of state power during the 20th century and explains its economically and morally deleterious uh, consequences. However, while they have proven exceptionally perceptive and farsighted in these endeavors, especially in comparison to their empiricist positive counterparts, neither Mises nor Rothbard made a systematic attempt to assert for a cause of the decline of classical liberal thought and laissez-faire capitalism and the non-committed rise of anti-capitalist political ideology and statism during the 20th century. Certainly, they did not think of democracy as being such a cause. In fact, although aware of the economic and ethical deficiencies of democracy, both Mises and Rothbard had a soft spot for democracy and tended to view the transition from monarchy to democracy as progress. 
In contrast, I will explain the rapid growth of state power in the course of the 20th century lamented by Mises and Rothbard as a systematic outcome of democracy and the democratic mindset, i.e. the erroneous belief in the efficiency and or justice of public property and popular majority rule. On the other hand, based on this deeper revisionist understanding of modern history, the following studies arrive also at a better, clearer, and more acute understanding of the constructive alternative to the democratic status quo, i.e. the natural order. There are detailed explanations regarding the operation of a natural order as a stateless social system with freely financed insurance agencies serving as competitive providers of law and order. There are equally detailed discussions of strategic matters. In particular, there are detailed discussions specifically of secession and the privatization of the, as the primary vehicles and means of which by which to overcome democracy and establish a natural order. Yeah. Each of the following chapters is self-contained and can be read separately. While this implies some thematic overlap across chapters, they combine into a progressing and expanding theoretical whole. With these studies, I wish to promote in particular the tradition of Austrian social theory and contribute to its reputation as not only a bastion of truth, but also as inspiring, exciting, and refreshing. And by the same token, but more generally, I wish to promote and contribute to the tradition of grand social theory encompassing political economy, political philosophy, and history, and including normative as well as positive questions. An appropriate term for this sort of intellectual endeavor would seem to be sociology. But while the term sociology has been sometimes used in this meaning, under the dominant influence of the empiricist positive philosophy, the term has has acquired an altogether different meaning and reputation. According to the empiricist doctrine, normative questions are not scientific questions at all, and there exists no such thing as a priori theory. That pretty much rules out grand social theory from the outset as unscientific. Accordingly, most of what passes nowadays as sociology is not only just plain false, but also irrelevant and dull. In distinct contrast, the following studies are everything a good positive claims one cannot and shall not be. Interdisciplinary, theoretically oriented, and dealing with both positive, empirical, and normative questions. I hope to demonstrate by example that this is the right approach as well as a more interesting one. And that is it. Uh, I, I think I was uh, reading only until the end of the next sentence on the next page, and I was—I should have been going to the end of the paragraph because it's a better stopping point. It's Damn. all good. I'm just going to look for a different yeah. guest next, yeah. episode, next episode. Oh, shit. <laughs> and, uh, Papa, uh, yeah, here he, uh, he signs. He has it kind of signed at the end of the um, intro there, and uh, it's uh, dated the year 2000. So that answers that question. And he... Uh, signed it as being in Las Vegas. So he was surrounding himself with degeneracy. To be fair, the, him signing that as 2000 was introduction. So he could have wrote the book prior. That's obviously true. he wrote the yeah. book prior to the introduction. And this right. could have been like a new version released later. Uh, I looked yeah, it in the kind of around in the, in the, at the little big things at the beginning. It looks like it's 2000. Maybe it was written yeah. before that. I don't know. Yeah. This could have been like a newer edition. I don't fucking know. But somewhere yeah. in that ballpark. So yeah. I love how... Uh, Everybody also like all the like detractors just focus or or and I guess the uh, the like pro hopping people who are false hoppings who haven't actually read hop or whatever mm-hmm. they're all they talk about is the uh, like the physical removal part of it and we don't get to that until like page two sixty probably or something like that. There's yeah. a lot in this book. Yeah, and the physical removal thing. Uh, not to get sucked into that. 
Uh, it sounds way more fucking um, provocative than it is. Yeah, it's, all you have to do is read the next paragraph after it, and that gives you what the context is. And nobody ever does that. Yeah, no, it's uh, it literally is. Everyone's like, "Oh my god, he's breaking the NAP." No, he's not. Uh, it's literally uh, for one, you can he you can kind of interpret this as just literally like bullying people away, like get the fuck out of here, we don't like you. But if you want to stay, I guess you can stay. Or it could be in the, it could be in the specific fucking uh, uh, like context of yeah. in a fucking uh, covenant community where you yeah. agreed to this specific condition before you came to it. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. for us to kick you the fuck out, even with violence, is perfectly in line because this is something you agreed to contractually. Right. So, like physical removal is literally just kicking you out of that community if you violated the terms under which you entered it. Yeah, so it's not, this is literally just violating a contract and get the fuck out. Uh, so it is silly. Uh, I know there was a whole thing on Twitter a while ago where some retard was trying to claim that fucking he, he, he was like, you know, didn't completely believe in the nap. You're like, okay, well, you obviously are an idiot who hasn't completely read this shit. So, uh, yeah. David Brady's talking about that right now, in fact. <laughs> yeah, I guess they released some like thing of the email. Which is funny because there was some email, I guess, someone had back and forth. But if you look at it, it didn't really even support their arguments. So it just made them look more dumb. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that was hilarious. Yeah. Well, apparently, uh, Hoppa is pretty responsive to emails, apparently. I want to get yeah. that guy's email address. Let's chat. Right, I'll, on, have hit him, I'll have to hit him up and have see if he's open to a live reading and just ditch you. Oh. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'd like to say I'm just kidding, but if he fucking did it, I'd... <laughs> And at least, at least let, let me be on and let me just listen to him. Yeah. All right. Uh, you know, go ahead and drop your plugs and we'll get the fuck out of here. And we'll do time preference next next time. Probably yeah, chapter time. one, time preference. Uh, he definitely draws a lot from uh, Mises in that one. And then he's going to apply time preference to everything in the book after that, basically. And why governments create high time preference and essentially degenerate behavior. Uh, I am Toad, TPH underscore Toad on Twitter with uh, this Elon uh, takeover of Twitter. I uh, attempted to appeal my account again, and it looks like that has failed. So I don't think I'm getting my other account back. So TPH underscore Toad, uh, Tower Power R with Jose, with Cole, uh, Clint, Top Lobster, Reed Coverdale sometimes. We're doing an episode tomorrow night, every Wednesday night. Uh, Check it out. We will uh, make you laugh and offend you. Yep. And uh, yeah, this is uh, I'm Jose Galison. This is a No Way Jose show. You can follow me on YouTube, all the major auto podcasters, Odyssey as well. Uh, you want to follow me on Twitter at Senor Jose Twenty Twenty. Hopefully, yeah. Elon comes back and I can get my old accounts back. I've like this is probably my third or fourth account, and every time I've gone to like three thousand and got nuked. So it's fucking unfortunate. Uh, but you know it is with this. Uh, if you want to support me, uh, uh, patreon.com snowy jose2020. You can follow me on Facebook as well if you want to, in case you're worried about me getting nuked off Twitter, but I don't do anything there. But uh, yeah, with that, like, share, subscribe, comment, all that shit. And with that, we are out. Thanks to everyone who showed up.